All right, guys, turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Um, all right, so we're still in the book of John, as you can see. And uh, John chapter 17, I think, is one of my favorite passages in the entire book because we get a glimpse in John 17 of Jesus talking to his father. Now, I would imagine that if, if I were to ask you, do you guys want to see a, a glimpse into a conversation between Jesus, which is, who is God the Son, and the Father, I would guess that you would say, yeah, I would love to see um, a glimpse into that conversation. And so um, John chapter 17 is, is that very thing. It is Jesus talking to his Father, and he is, uh, they are still in the upper room. They are still um, in that place. Uh, John chapter 13 through 17 is actually called the Upper Room Discourse. And what this is, is uh, so four chapters or five chapters are devoted to Jesus being with his disciples in this upper room. Judas has already betrayed Jesus, or he's already set out to betray Jesus. Um, we've, we've seen several things in this part of the book of John. But John chapter 17 is like the end of the Upper Room part of the story, Okay. And so we'll move into the, the trial of Jesus uh, in two weeks. Um, so look with me at John chapter 17, verses uh, 1 to 5. Look with me there in verses uh, 1 through 5. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So after Jesus gives them this long speech in the upper room, uh, he then moves into prayer and I want you to focus, I know whenever we read scripture, it's very easy for us to just, your brain to shut off. Do you guys do that? Something where you're reading a passage, you're, you kind of go on brain like sleep mode, and they're just kind of words to you, and you forget like what the words actually mean. So I want you to focus in on the word authority in verse, uh, I think it's in verse two here. Yeah, verse two. And look what Jesus says in verse two. He says, since you have given him, so it's kind of funny because he's talking about himself, but referring to himself in the third person. He's saying, since you have given him, meaning me, Jesus, authority over all flesh. So he's saying that God the Father has given God the Son authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. I want you to watch this. Jesus is saying, you have given me, God the Father has given me, the Son, authority over all human flesh to give them what? What does it say? It says eternal life. Now, most of us, when we see the word authority or hear that concept of authority or we hear God and the word God and authority in the same sentence, we want to run, right? That's our reaction most of the time. Like, we, we hear authority, and our concept of authority is always negative, especially at your age. Like, authority, okay, that's, that's in the negative category of life. Authority is in the negative category of life. I want nothing to do with authority or someone having authority over me. In John 17, verse 2, Jesus says, listen, 
he says, the Father has given me, the Son, authority over all human flesh so that I can give them eternal life. That's not the way that most of us think of God using his authority, is it? Most of us think of authority as, okay, rules. That means God's going to put some rules on me that I don't like. That means God's going to impose himself on my life. That means my parents are going to squelch out what little bit of fun and life I have. That's how we view authority. And Jesus is saying, no, I've been giving authority so that I can give people like you, the disciples, eternal life. How does Jesus use his authority? He gives life with it. He gives eternal life with it. He doesn't squelch it. He doesn't take it from you. He gives you eternal life if you put your faith and trust and believe in him. And when you look at this passage, I know that there are so many people, especially at your age, that um, when you think of following Christ, you think of just that. You think of Jesus is going to come and squelch my life. He's going he's to make me follow a bunch of rules I don't want to follow. That's what it means to be a Christian is to do some stuff that I don't, wanna, I don't really want to do. And Jesus is saying, no, I, I am given authority so that I can give humanity eternal life. That's how I'm going to use my authority is to give life, not to take it. And I want you to, I normally do like a more of a gospel thing at the very end of a message and just like a little take on, you know, put your faith and trust in Jesus. Like if today's, if today's your day, put your faith and trust in him today and come to know him, surrender your life to him today. And I want to tell you this, this morning that I want to do that right now before we even get into this message further. That if you're someone who you have been seeing Jesus as a life taker and not a life giver, that this verse shows that Jesus Christ, he wants one thing for you, and it's to live in eternity with him. Why would you say no to that? The, the God who created us, he is extending himself to you in his son, Jesus Christ. Why in the world would we say no to that invitation? And so if you have never given your life to him, submitted yourself to his authority, surrendered your life to him, put your faith and trust in him and his finished work on the cross, you can do that today. Today can be the day that you decide to surrender your life to him. You pray and you tell him that. You say, Jesus, I want this for my life. The prayer itself does not save you. It's faith. It's belief that saves. But the prayer can be an expression of that. An expression of that. If if that's where you're at, why would you not take him up on his invitation that he's offering to you? He's using his authority to give eternal life to humanity. Why would you not take him up on the offer? The God of the universe wants a relationship with me and you. Why would we say no to that? What, what else is there that beats that? What, what else in life are you saying yes to that's causing you to say no to him? And, and how, how are those things coming through for you? How are those things better than Jesus? How are those things better than eternity with Jesus? Jesus Christ wants to be in a relationship with you, and he wants to be in that relationship with you for eternity. And I know whenever most of us think of eternal life, most of us think of, you know, that's down the road, that's heaven, that's somewhere else, that's not here. And so in verse 3, in verse 3 he says, and this is eternal life. So what is eternal life? 
Verse 3 is going to tell us. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only, true God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is not something off in the distance. Eternal life is not something after you finish this life, then eternal life begins. Eternal life, biblically, eternal life starts right now. Everyone's going to live forever. The question is where and with who? Eternal life starts now. And so he says eternal life is wrapped up in this idea in verse 3. He says that they know you, the only true God. So what is eternal life? It's to know him. It's to know him. And I'm not trying to be crass or crude when I say this, but in other parts of Scripture, uh, the word know is actually like a sexual word. It's like a, um, an Adam knew Eve or Abraham knew his wife. And they don't mean like knew, like he just, yeah, he knew who she was, you know. They don't mean it like that. They mean like it's in a, it's in a sexual sense. That's a word that it's, they would use in Hebrew for that. And um, I'm not trying to be crass when I say that, but I want you to follow me with my logic on this. Uh, God's desire for us is to know him. Now listen. He gives us things like human relationships to point us to a greater relationship with himself. And so it only follows, look, listen to this. There's a reason why each one of us, males and females, we feel driven towards the opposite sex, right? And, and so I can say this, I'm married. So um, I saw my wife and I thought, you know, I really want to get to know her. I really want to talk to her, okay? And, and so we walked down that pathway, and eventually we got married. And so um, and that, that is probably God's plan for, for many of you, is to find a husband, find a wife. And, and you're going to find yourself, you, you, you feel driven towards oneness with someone else, opposite sex, right? But listen, you don't just feel driven towards oneness like that. You also feel a certain kind of... Of, of oneness that you like to have with your friends too, right? Right? And, and so you feel like you're driven towards friendships. You, you want to be um, one with your friends in, in other ways, obviously, but you want to still be one with them, right? You still want to have, have community with them. And so, um, so the whole reason why, listen, the whole reason why you feel in yourself this drivenness towards other kinds of friendships and relationships is because God created you to be one with him and to know him. And all of those other relationships are meant, to point, are meant to point you in that direction towards him. The problem is that most of us, we understand that we have these desires to, uh, you know, find a um, boyfriend or a girlfriend, a husband or a wife. We have desires to find friendships, strong, solid friendships. But for most of us, it just stops right there, right? We don't, we don't see those things as pointing us to a greater relationship with Jesus Christ. We don't understand that in the same way that I am meant to know my wife or know my friends, I'm also meant to know God and have a relationship with God. And so eternal life is wrapped up in this one thing, that his desire is for you to know him. That's it, to know him. Why would we say no to that? Why? What causes us to say no to 
the God of the universe extending himself to us in that way. You know, I think sometimes we have these, with relationship comes fears, right? We've all been there. I mean, I know that, that you guys walking into this building on a Sunday and a Wednesday, it can be a frightening place because you're worried about rejection. You're worried about, well, is that person going to accept me? Are they going to accept me? When you get into a dating relationship, your worst fear is what? It's rejection, right? It's when are they going to stop loving for me and caring for me? When are they going to turn their back on me? And the great thing about Jesus is that the truth about Jesus is this. Listen, Jesus Christ never does that to you. All the fears and insecurities that you and I have in human relationships, Jesus Christ never does that to you. There is a security that you have with the God of the universe that you will not have with any human being on the face of the earth. And the crazy thing is that most of us, we chase after the human relationships and we get hurt over and over and over again. We make those things our God and we chase after them continuously and we turn our back on God and the humans are the ones that are doing the pain, right? And we still, we still pursue them, right, in spite of that. And yet God in his perfection will never do that to you. His one desire is to know you. That's it. To know you. He's extending himself to you. To know you. And so look down at me at verse 9. After Jesus prays uh, this first part of the passage, in verse 9 he talks about, he prays for his disciples. Look at verse 9. It says, I am praying for them. So the them is now his 11 disciples that are left in that room. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. And so now he shifts his prayer to praying for his immediate disciples in that room with him. Look down at verse, uh, look down at verse 14 now. Because I want you to see this. this is, we're going to spend some time on verses 14 and 15. In verse, four, in verse 14 he says, I have given them your word. So them's the disciples. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So before we get into discussing this passage, I want you to discuss some questions at your tables. Go ahead and do questions one through four at your tables. Go ahead and discuss Okay, let's, let's read verses uh, 14 and 15 again, uh, just to refocus you on those verses. Um, we're going to spend a little bit of time on these two verses because this is a, if, listen, if you understand like what Jesus is really saying in these two verses, you're going to understand a lot about how a Christian is meant to relate to the world around us. So look at verse 14 and 15 again. He says, I have given them your word and the world, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
So Jesus is saying that the world is going to hate them because they are not of the world. Meaning, when he says of the world, he means they're not buying into the world's lifestyles and philosophies. They're not from the world. In the same way that Jesus is not from the world, when somebody becomes a believer and puts their faith and trust in Jesus, you are kind of like an alien a little bit. But the solution to that is not to go move into a commune and separate yourself from the world. Some people call this that, um, that Christians need to be the, the people of the tension, right? That we live in this real fine line tension of, of being in the world but not of the world. Being in the world but not of the world. And he says in this verse, he says that the world's going to hate some believers. Some in the world are going to hate believers because they are not of the world. Now listen, I've got a real, I guess, personal beef with, um, I've got a lot of friends on Facebook. I mean, as a pastor, you're going to have a lot of people that you know on Facebook, right? So um, there's a lot of Christians, even Christians in this church, that vent a lot on Facebook about non-Christians and how much they don't like what non-Christians do, okay? And let me just vent about them for a minute, the people that vent on Facebook. I'm going to vent about them for a moment. Listen, listen. Um, Because it's like they forget for a moment that they might have non-Christian friends that see it, right? And I, I don't get it. I don't understand why we go on Facebook and rant and rave about Christian ideas and how the world has this nasty habit of acting like the world, right? Like the world's going to act like the world. Now, I'm not saying that in a condescending way, like, you know, well, what do you expect from those? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the world's going to act like the world. And so that should not surprise Christians when the world acts like the world, right? And so it makes no sense to go on Facebook or other ways of broadcasting yourself and vent about those kind of things because here's what it communicates. Um, In this passage, you will never see Jesus tell Christians to hate the world. He says that the world's going to hate Christians. So what he's saying is that hate should be a one-way street, not a two-way street. And so many Christians make hate a two-way street, don't they? It's like, oh, the world hates us? Well, guess what? We hate them, so we're even, right? And hate is a two-way street for many Christians. They say, I don't care if they hate us. Look, this verse says they're supposed to hate us. It's like, well, hey, listen, guess what? They're not supposed to hate you because you're just a jerk. They might hate you because you're just not in agreement with their worldview and their lifestyles and so on, right? But some Christians take it upon themselves to be so much of a jerk about what they believe, and then someone hates them for that, and they say, well, see here, it says that we're supposed to be hated. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that some are going to hate you because of what you believe, but you shouldn't give them any extra excuses to hate you, okay? You shouldn't be giving them extra reasons to despise you and hate you as a Christian. It might happen naturally because of just the way things are, but there's no need for you to give them extra excuses to hate believers. And so um, one of the mistakes that Christians will make uh, sometimes is to take themselves out of the world completely. Remove from the world, set up a commune, 
um, which is kind of cultish, and uh, let's make our own cereal, let's make our own deodorant, our own soap. Um, we don't buy non-Christian soap because that's what non-Christians use. Um, we're going to make our own underwear, make our own clothing. They actually have an underwear line called Faithwear. Do you know about this? It's serious. Faithwear. Faithwear. Faith wears Faithwear? Hey, don't, I don't want, that's too personal. Too much information. She forgot there's like 100 people in the room just for a split second. All right, so, um, so one way, listen, listen. So one way people do this is they totally pull out of the world, right? Listen. So um, uh, a few months ago, um, can I be really just frank and honest this morning, like just totally honest today? Let's do it. So um, a few months ago, I don't like talking about people, but I kind of have to for sermon illustrations sometimes. I'm not going to mention your names, though. So uh, a few months ago, a family came into this building. Uh, they're not here, don't worry. And, um, and, and the dad said, um, he said, hey, I'm, I want to plug my son into your youth group. And I said, that's great. We'd love to have him. And um, we stood out there in the, in the front area of the, of the outback, and he proceeded to tell me, he said, you know, yeah, we do homeschool. And listen, I have nothing, there's nothing wrong with homeschool, nothing wrong with Christian school. I went to Christian school all the way through kindergarten through 12th grade, okay? That's me. Let me say something very quickly, though. If, if, if someone's motive to homeschool or Christian school, if their motive to do that is to completely pull out of the world, then the motive is wrong. The motive is wrong. This is not a statement about Public school, homeschool, Christian school, which one's better? That's not even what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if your motive to do something else for schooling is so that you can completely remove yourself from the world, then that is a wrong motive. And I will say that if that's where you're at, then you need to find other ways you can connect to the world around you. That's fine. If you're someone who you just learn better in that environment, are you, that's a different debate. But if your motive is to completely pull out of the world, then that's a wrong motive. And so this dad proceeded to tell me, he said, he said, yeah, we, we homeschool our kids. And he said, we do that because I'm not sending my kid into that public school filth. And I just went. And there's a kid like across the door from me, like who goes to public school standing right there. And I'm like, you mean like that guy right there? <laughs> I didn't say that I wanted to. And, and just that one statement, I just saw, okay, I know what category to put you into. I don't like stereotypes, but this guy was like, you're, you're kind of a stereotype, right? And, and here's what is wrong with that attitude, is that what that communicates to your children who are, you're homeschooling, right, is that the filth that you talk about is out there in the world, you know, the filth is out there. What it does is it communicates to your children that the filth is not in here, right? That that same filth is not in me as, as the son or the daughter. The filth is out there, way out there in the world, and it's not in me. I don't have that filth. And the reality is the filth is in each one of us. And what you end up with is, is honestly, bluntly, self-righteous little punks, right? That's what you end up with, right? If, if you're being taught that, that's what you end up with. The end result is going to be, yeah, the filth is out there. It's not in me. 
I have no chance of falling into that. Jesus had to die. Listen, Jesus had to die for the filth that was in me and you. And if any person thinks that they're exempt from that, it just creates pride and self-righteousness, and I'm up here and they're all down here, right? That's what it creates. And so Christians can easily fall into the trap of, of totally pulling out of the world because of these kinds of things. And here's, here's what happens, honestly, is that Christians, when they remove themselves from the world, they make it so that they cannot change the world. They remove themselves and their influence from the world, right? And I think what happens is parents, like the one I'm describing, they buy into this myth that that they really can take their kid out of the world, right? Like, here's the world, their kid's in the world, they pull their kid out of the world, and now their kid's no longer in the world, right? And that right there is a myth, because I went to school at a Christian school all the way through uh, kindergarten, I think it was a great thing for me, not for everybody, it was a good thing for me, it it worked out well for me, but um, I first heard about sex when I was in second grade at that Christian school. This kid in my class, right, told me what that was. Second grade, okay? My son is six years old. So I was seven in second grade, a year older than he is now. I, and, and I know the reaction because we have our kid um, in TASD. It's working out well for us. We're, we plan on doing that. You know, so we're just going to see how this works out, right? And so... Um, I know the horror we would feel as parents if, if our kid came home and was like, you know, so daddy, I heard this word today, and I'm like, you're in kindergarten, what's wrong with this place, right? So um, I know the reaction we'd have if we heard that, but here's the deal. How are my parents going to react when they heard that from me in second grade, right? I'm like, mom, dad, I got some questions. They're like, we can't really choose a different school because this is the school that was supposed to prevent that from happening, Right? So, you know, at that point, if you're in a Christian school, homeschool, you're still going to be in the world, right? You, you can't, the moon's not an option, right? You, you can't go somewhere else. And, and so there's this myth, there's a, listen, listen, there's this myth that you can actually pull your kid out of the world and stick them somewhere else that's not the world. The world is everywhere, right? It's in me, it's in you. That filth is in all of us. It's why Jesus had to die. And the second mistake that we make, listen, that Christians make is being in the world and of, it's the opposite end of the spectrum, right? It's being in the world and of the world. The opposite end of the spectrum. You see, um, some Christians aren't just in the world, but they love being in the world and of the world. It's like, Yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to try that. I'm going to see that movie. I'm going to listen to that. It's like they just kind of eat up whatever the world's offering. They're like, yeah, I want to do all of this, right? And what they forget is that, no, they're crossing the line from being in the world over into being of the world. Tell you a quick story. Man, it's late. I got to go. Quick story. I talked to a... uh, 
I talked to a dad recently, this was about a year and a half ago, and um, he informed me that um, he let his daughters and his, and his wife, the mom of these daughters, uh, go see, the, he gave them the money, he handed them money and said, go see the movie Magic Mike. All right? If you don't know what the movie is, then that's good, don't ask. But he handed them money, and, and listen, he and I had a long conversation after he told me that. It was a bad conversation on his part because I was just, I was living. I was like, how can you call yourself a Christian man and say you're leading your family and yet send your kids and your wife to go watch a porno? Like, how can you do that? And he had justification. He had reasons. He actually thought it through. And I was just going, what is, what are you smoking? Like, what is wrong with you? And so listen, listen, this is being in the world and of the world, right? This is being in and of, okay? So what Jesus is saying, he wants us to be in the world but not of the world. Now, I got to move. It's late. I get on a soapbox and it just gets bad from there. Okay, look down at verse 20. You got to see this. Verse 20. So Jesus is now at the end of this prayer and he says, verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. All right, I want you to see this. Listen, do you realize who Jesus just prayed for in the passage, okay? Read it again. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Do you realize what just happened in that passage? Jesus Christ, it's written in scripture, in red in my Bible, he just prayed for you. Like, just let that sink in for a minute. Jesus Christ was talking to his father, God the Father, in this passage, and he just prayed for you. There's that big category of people that is is really big, probably billions of people, right? But if you're a believer... You're in the category that he just prayed about right there, okay? So if you want to go home today and say, Mom, Dad, here's what we learned. Jesus, look, Jesus prays for all future believers in the passage that we read today. Like, that includes you and, you and Dad. Like, that includes all of us. Jesus Christ prayed for you in this passage. Now watch this. If you know that Jesus Christ prayed for you, and it's recorded in Scripture, don't you want to know what he prayed about? Look at the next verse, the next, next phrase. He says, what's he pray for? Verse 21. That they may all be, what? One. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Listen. Jesus prays for me and you in this passage and he prays for one thing he prays for unity among believers and he says he prays for unity because he knows that the way the church is unified or disunified is going to be a reflection of his name look at what it says he says i pray for their unity so that they will know that you sent me so the world will know that 
Jesus is real and true. Listen, we titled this series, The Truth About Jesus, the way that the world is going to know the truth about Jesus is by your unity. It's why I always harp on community and why I get upset when I see disunity because when there's disunity, it's a reflection of Jesus Christ and his name. And it's why people who are not believers think we're a fraud. It's why people who are not believers think that, um, that this whole thing is just junk, right? It's because of our disunity. And it's why we harp on community around here all the time. And I know it's really late, so I'm going to end now. But I want you to um, just think about this. If you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, he offers eternal life to you. He wants a relationship with you. You can put your faith and trust in him today. Today. You guys go ahead and discuss uh, your last few questions and we'll be dismissed in a few minutes.